Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Love talking to this guy. We've made him our a member of our musical hall of fame, and his career spans decades. And so much he's done from performing strings on many hit songs of the late 60s and the 70s, lots of soul songs, working in commercials that you probably have heard through the years, and probably best known as concertmaster and personnel manager of the Lyric Opera in Chicago. And it's so great to have him back here. Everett Zlatoff-Mirsky joins us on the program. Everett, how are you doing today? Very well, very well. Cannot complain at all. Wonderful having you back here. You are such a, a dedicated musician, so many achievements, and, and a leader in the field of music when it comes to the lyric opera of Chicago. Out of the gate here, I want to ask you this. Opera, we got it. We understand what that means. Why, why is it called lyric opera? Any particular reason? Well, I think it's uh, because of the uh, lyric expression of the voices. You know, it's... Uh very beautiful, melodious. Uh, some of the contemporary operas that are being done today, I don't think they would be called lyric. <laughs> when lyric opera started, they were still dealing with the, the, the classic Italian composers, especially Puccini, Verdi. Uh, you know, so uh, lyric just means beautiful, flowing, beautiful to the ear. Hmm. How how was that determined when there was a performance to make it that way? Was it the singers? Was it literally the, the lyrics? But a lot of the these operas were written so many years back, right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the uh, the main main driving force of really the operas that are being presented and are known and loved they are very melodious, very dramatic, especially mm. the Italian operas. My gosh. Verdi, uh, it, uh, it's uh, blood and guts almost, you know, and great romance, great betrayal, murder, mayhem, betrayal. Uh, and many times I, I think those, those uh, librettos that were done were comments on the political situation in Italy especially. Uh, Verdi had some real problems with censorship with his, his operas when sometimes the... Uh, story of the opera was too sensitive to the uh, Italian, current Italian mm. government back in the 1800s, and so he had to change things. A very famous example is uh, his opera, uh, Masked Ball, which is uh, what everyone that loves Verdi loves Masked Ball. At any rate, uh, that was uh, originally, uh, there was, uh, well, it, it was set in, in the assassination of the uh, a, um, a Swedish king, I believe, and uh, the idea of a European monarch being assassinated—that was very—that was very touchy thing. We didn't want to talk about any of the rulers in, in Europe being assassinated. So the whole thing, he, uh, in order for Verdi to put that on, it had the whole thing had to be changed to the United States. <laughs> wow. And so it, it, it's. <laughs> The version was set in the United States. I guess that was that was palatable to the censors in Italy. It's, I, you know great. what? You, you said the word. I was just going to say that word. That there was there was censorship even back then. Oh my gosh! Yes. Oh sure. Yes. Oh big time, big time. Anytime a new work was going to be uh, presented, it was 
scoured by the uh, official in charge of making sure that there was nothing slanderous or in any way negative about the current government. That was in France and Italy, all over Europe. Yeah. Wow. That's just kind of crazy because when you think about it, it's just somebody, I don't want to minimize it, just it's somebody singing. It's not like it's, uh, you know, in a, in a newspaper and published and all of that, but how, ah, wow, interesting. Now, yeah. you you gave us a, a snapshot last time we talked of your responsibility as a, a concert master, is that would that be similar to a you know call it a maestro? Well, uh, yes. As a matter of fact, that was one of the designations uh, that was applied to me. Uh, Carol Fox, the ex- executive uh, director of, uh, of Lyric Opera, was a stickler on everyone being uh, uh, addressed by their proper title. Uh, if the, the, the conductor was in the hall, you have to say, good afternoon, maestro, and so forth. And the uh, concertmaster uh, in, in Italy, and in, uh, the tradition was also to address him as, as maestro. And uh, lots of the people on the staff thought this was complete nonsense. This is <laughs> an acronym from the past, and nothing wrong with, with saying hello to the conductor is, hi, how you doing? You know, <laughs> but right. Carol wouldn't And so... Uh, when I first was hired as, as the uh, Lyric's new concertmaster, uh, the, the staff asked uh, Janet, um, who was not at that point, not, we weren't married yet, she was just my boss. And uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second, hold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hold on. So you, yeah. mar- you married your boss? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I convinced her it was the right thing to do. How interesting. <laughs> Oh, that that that, uh, that I'm just uh, visualizing that, and that and once you did, did you guys still work together? Oh yes, yes. Janet Janet stayed on at Lyric Opera for another five or six years before she decided she'd had, had enough of working at Lyric and, and retired. Yeah. Did it have anything to do with you? No, no, <laughs> no. We were still very much they were very very much together, and yeah, no problem. But at any rate, the staff asked asked Janet. Uh, since she was my boss, and so they asked her, uh, how should we address uh, Everett, uh, the new concertmaster? And Janet had a very clever plan in mind. She said, you should address him as Prince. And, and they said, what? And she said, well, he comes from an old Russian aristocratic family, and, you know, he, he is a prince. Uh, and... and the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that the history of Russia, it's not like England where there's one or two princes around. In, in Russia, once you were, uh, any sort of royal title was uh, applied to you, uh, why, why that, it kept on being passed down. There were probably 10,000 real, real princes with all the lineage and everything else, and most of them were broke and, and out of money, but, uh, but they were still addressed as prince. At any rate, the staff loved that, and they uh, they uh, it, word went around like wildfire, and soon everyone was addressing me as Prince Sladov Mirsky and so forth. Carol Fox hits the ceiling, and so wow. said, getting rid of all that, no more maestro, no more princes, nothing, just mister. <laughs> that did. How did that feel when when people were looking at you in that uh, in that capacity? Oh, I, I think. 
then they knew what was happening here. It was just a, a throwback, a pushback against the, the, the artificial restraints of all these old-fashioned titles. And so they were on board with, with going overboard. They thought it was all a great joke. <laughs> I, I, you know, my, my father, uh, who used to throw huge parties for the uh, entire Russian community in Chicago, and uh, it, it would bankrupt him every year. We would owe money to, to everybody, and he took him half a year to pay off all the debts. But every, every Russian Orthodox Easter, he would have a huge party. Mm. And, uh, and his friends would address him as Knaz, which is in Russian print. And he would say, no, this is, those days are long dead and gone. This is America. This is why you came here. Forget it. I'm Mr. You know, and so... Uh, but the lyric opera thought that it was just a great way of getting back at these artificial titles and bowing and scraping and all this nonsense. <laughs> Fascinating. Fat, you know, and, and I knew of your Russian roots, but, you know, hearing that all described, it's, uh, it's so interesting. So take us, walk us through, you know, a regular, call it performance. I don't want to call it a regular day, but, you know, you, you, you're going to work, you got a performance tonight. What, um, what was the the chain there from the, the moment you showed well, up to the end. Yeah. The, the chain is that I would get to the opera house an hour and a half, usually before the performance, because I had another position at Lyric Opera being the personnel manager of the orchestra. And that was, was occupied. I mean, as concert master, I practiced, I knew I, I came in ready to go. I just, I don't, didn't need to do anything uh, other than just warm up my fingers so they wouldn't be cold. But the real operation uh, at Lyric Opera, for me, was being personnel manager. And there's so much more to being a personnel manager than just handing out the paychecks. Uh, the first thing I have, would have to do is I would go into what is uh, called a rehearsal department, an office staffed by three or four people, handling last-minute phone calls, messages, uh, dealing with other details, who come up for the entire uh, company, there was a, like a mailbox, and there was a slot in there for the orchestra, and any messages for the orchestra would be placed in this mailbox. So the first thing I did was I would go into that mailbox and make sure that there were no slips in there saying, uh, Joe Blow can't make it, his car broke down. Because then, at that point, I would have to think, oh gosh, uh, he has to be replaced. And so I would, uh, the, the way it worked uh, with Lyric Opera Orchestra, uh, every principal player of the various uh, sections, whether it was a <clears throat> principal, flute, clarinet, uh, oboe, whatever it is, the, the first in line in every any designated section, I would have to call them up and say, look, uh, your second clarinet uh, just is, is, you know, can't, can't make whatever the problem was, family emergency, whatnot. Who should I call? And they would tell me who I, I should call. And usually there was a list in every instrument category, whether violin, viola, cello, flute, or whatever, there was a list of players that were, were known to the principal players, and they would let me know uh, so that uh, if I couldn't hire the first person that they wanted me to call, I would not bother calling them back. I would just go down the list. They gave me that list as to who they wanted me to hire in an emergency. And so then I would thank God for cell phones. Uh, and even in those old, the first days of Lyric Opera, there were bag phones, you know, those old things. Well, uh, you know, well, uh, early I, to, to, totally remember it, very clear. <laughs> <laughs> right, 
Right. Yep. So, you know, I would instantly start calling these people, and sometimes I would I would have to go three or four down the list before I could get someone to actually answer and say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make it, I'll run down. And so, you know, there was never an empty chair uh, looking at the conductor, whether it was a rehearsal or a performance. That, it was always a full complement of musicians. But uh, that, that was... That was the, the most important thing. And, and then the, uh, uh, quite often uh, the physical requirements of players, especially screen players with their bad backs and whatnot uh, from, from sitting for, for a number of years uh, in a uh, cramped pit, um, some people had, had physical problems that had to be addressed by certain uh, uh, adjustments to their chair. There was a, 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 a pit setup guy that was always there to help uh, to help me out and ha- help out emergencies. I know in my case, uh, I had I. Some people like to sit back in their chairs. I don't, and so I like to sit very upright and almost forward. And I had uh, uh, his name was Ron Snick, and uh, I would he made me like little risers into the back seat of the chair to pump me up to, to pitch the whole chair forward, so I would be sitting more upright and toward the music. And uh, and there were various uh, various things that the pit setup guy had to <clears throat> do for the various needs of the uh, of the players in the orchestra. And then there's the matter of uh, not so much for in any given performance, but when we were first doing a new opera, the the physical setup of the instruments in the pit changed according to uh, the uh, nature of the opera that's being performed. And also, with these conductors coming from all over the world, they are used to having the, the violins in one position and the second violins in another position. And we had to sometimes accommodate deviating from the normal pit setup to accommodate what the conductor uh, wanted, and so that was a, a big uh, reconfiguration reconfiguration of the pit. That uh, that was always a big deal, and and then the uh, uh, if everyone showed up and was on time, then the performance or the rehearsal, because all this routine had to be gone through for every rehearsal as well, would go forward. Um, but the, the personnel manager. Uh, also has to deal with, with so many more things. Uh, I, if I had any idea, you know, I, I signed on as concertmaster. I, I knew what that was. I'd been doing it for years before I was ever hired by Lyric Opera. But I had, being personnel manager, I thought it was just a matter of uh, handing out paychecks and, as I said, keeping the, uh, the brush fires down to get people to work together and so forth. But there's so much paperwork that goes into it. And also very interesting when there's a, a, an opera that requires an unusual instrument, it would be up to the personnel manager to find that instrument and also the, the player who is going to uh, play it. The, the thing that comes to mind especially is in Strauss operas, Strauss used an instrument which is very rarely used called a hecklephone. A heckle phone is very much like uh, a, uh, a bass oboe. Um, uh, the oboe family is sort of, let's, let's take an example. Okay, violin family, you have a violin, and then the bigger, the bigger relative, the viola, even bigger relative, the cello, and then the, the, the 
big daddy, the string bass. Well, the oboes are very much the same way. There's the, the standard oboe that everyone knows about. Then the, the, the uh, English horn, or the cor anglaise, which is a uh, longer, larger instrument. It, it's also played with a double reed. And it sounds very much like an oboe, but has a much deeper, more rich sound. And then there is the bass oboe, which is a, a whole octave lower than the usual oboe. Um, and and the hecophone is the same. It's, it's a double reed. It's a member of the oboe family, but unlike the rest of the uh, oboe family, its inside bore, the inside dimensions, are larger, and it has a much darker, uh, more baritonal sound. It sounds like an oboe, but the, the tone color is totally different. Well, at any rate, it was a very rare instrument. I think only about 150 were ever made, and of those, I don't know how many are left in existence, I, I suppose maybe 75, 80 or something, every major orchestra in the world has a hecophone. Um, but uh, at Lyric Opera at, at that point, uh, the Strauss Opera, we were doing Zalami, I think, and it required a, a hecophone that was in the score. And so I, I was searched around all over the place for a hecophone. There wasn't one in Chicago. Well, the Chicago Symphony had one, but they don't lend out their instruments. I mean, that, you know, they just don't do that. Uh, so I found one down at the University of Illinois, and, uh, but it was not in great condition. And so the, the deal that Lyric Opera worked out, well, I worked out on behalf of Lyric Opera with them, is that uh, rather than uh, they were willing to rent it to us, but they said it doesn't really sound in good shape. And so the deal was, instead of a rental fee, we, Lyric Opera would pay to have the instrument rebuilt and brought, brought into to playing condition. And so they agreed with that. And so uh, the, uh, the instrument was uh, acquired and, and that was done. So that, that's a weird thing. And, and I have to say that was the only time it was done. Because when we, we did other Strauss operas, Elektra or Frau uh, uh really the, the uh, bass oboe has all the same pitches. And it's not quite the same sound, but it's close enough, for God's sake. And we just, Lyric Opera said, we're not going to go through this hecophone nonsense anymore. Just always use the bass oboe and substitute it for the hecophone. So that's an example of, of weird little things like that that uh, come up. Yeah. So I, I had no idea uh, that you run deep in terms of even other types of instruments. I mean, you're, you're known for strings, but uh, wow. Okay. So I, w I want to move over to the personnel manager aspect of uh, right. the Lyric Opera. What was entailed in all that? Oh, gosh. Personnel manager. Well, hiring extra musicians whenever they were needed for the big German opera, Strauss, Wagner, and so forth. And again, that was, uh, I would go to the principal, let's say, okay, second violin. Um, I, I would know who I wanted to hire because I was personnel manager and concert master of the first violins. I, I, I would just hire the people that, uh, that uh, were on the, the list of standby, standby players. And uh, for the second violins, I would talk to the principal second violin and say, all right, from the list of uh, extra players, whom do you want me to call? And in the pecking order, you know, and so he would give me names, and, and he would just pick out whom I was to call and what order I was to call them, and 
that's how I would hire extra musicians. Same thing for the violas and cellos. You know, it, it worked exactly the same way. Now, for other instruments, because the personnel manager quite often is not a string player, and as a matter of fact, in lots of orchestras today, I believe even at Lyric Opera today, the personnel manager isn't a member of the orchestra. It's just a, a person hired outside uh, of the orchestra, but who knows everyone, who is a musician, who knows everybody. Uh, at any rate, when I was there, uh, if, if uh, I had to hire extra player, for instance, Wagner operas, Wagner used a, uh, an instrument called a, uh, a tubin. Uh, tubin was a... Uh, uh, instrument in between a, a small, it's like a very small tuba, uh, but they were uh, uh, used extensively in, in Wagner operas. He loved them. He loved the four French horns and four tuban. He liked that the richer sound. Uh, at any rate, uh, since it's a, it falls into the heading of French horn family, I would call a principal French horn and say, okay, we have uh, Wagner tubas to hire uh, for uh, 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 one of the ring cycle operas, whichever one. And so, whom should I hire? And again, same deal. There was a pecking order of people that the principal uh, player had, and I would select somebody uh, from from the list of people he gave me. As the years went on, uh, that designation of uh, I wouldn't, I would not so much uh, talk to the. Uh, principal player, they didn't make the decisions anymore. The uh, orchestra committee, it was a much more democratic process where the members of the section had to sort of agree as to who was hired. Um, at any rate, the principle is the same. Whatever extra instrument has to be hired, I have to go to the principal or go to the orchestra committee and say, okay, we need to hire whatever, the Tubins, and uh, I would be given a list of players in, in a pecking order to uh, to call and hire. Yeah, so that, that's all part of the uh, personnel manager, for sure. Uh, and, and then there is a matter of string rotation, or uh, this didn't happen so much in, well, it didn't happen other than in the string section. First, second violin, the oldest cellos, uh, it it uh, turned out because of the democracy and also, I think, because of, of uh, players not wanting to be left their entire. For years, way back in the section, they wanted the chance to play up closer to the conductor. So there was a, a rotation uh, mm. that, that happens. Uh, for, I have to keep track of who was uh, due up for, uh, for to come up and sit on the uh, uh, second stand. Uh, the, the first stand was always in the first violin, the concertmaster and assistant concertmaster, that that doesn't change. Um, but uh, and and in uh, like the Chicago Symphony, there will be more than one assistant concertmaster, and those people always sit in there. Let's say the second assistant concertmaster will be sitting on the outside chair on the second stand. They never move. They don't take part in the rotation. Uh, titled uh, position. Uh, assistant this, assistant that. They stayed where they were sitting. They didn't rotate. But everyone else in the section did. And so I would have to keep track of, uh, of all that and um, whose turn it was. And then there's the matter of uh, different size of strings required for uh, different 
operas, earlier operas, Mozart, uh, for instance, you wouldn't play with as the large forces of players that you would for a, well, Verdi or Wagner, certainly not Strauss. Um, you would play with less. A, I think the typical size, I'm pretty sure this is right, the, uh, the first violins were, were 13 or 12. I think it was 13, and then the second violins were 12. Violas were uh, eight, cello six, and then you had six string basses. And so uh, I think the cellos, let's see, violas eight, cello six, is that right? Could be seven cellos. I think that, that I think that's right. Yeah, violas eight, cello seven, string basses six. Okay, but for a Mozart opera, that wouldn't be the case. It would be totally the wrong wrong sound uh, for that for that uh, type of uh, earlier opera. You'd have maybe just eight first violins and seven second violins and let's say uh, six violas, uh, five cellos or maybe even four cellos and just three string basses. It was a much slimmer uh, sound that, that came out of the, uh, the orchestra. And then, of course, the winds and brass are just, there are just fewer of them. You don't have the, uh, you don't have three, uh, three clarinets and you don't have uh, three elbows and, you know, you don't, Everything is, is uh, just a, a lighter, more delicate scoring. So You, you know, uh, the one thing that we, and we're just about out of time here today, I wish we could just keep going. You, oh, <laughs> the, probably the, one of the biggest challenges is, I'm sure, the the egos that you have to deal with as well. Just that, you know, that that's in any business. Now you have to add people who are creative. And like you you, you had said, you have to rotate the uh, the layout of the performers that there's that's a lot <laughs> as a personnel manager. There it, is very there challenging. Is. Again, putting out brush fires and many things come up as, as you just alluded to in all this rotation. I want to get closer to the conductor and so forth. Yeah, very interesting. The guy that took over my job when I retired was uh, uh, Peter Labella, who uh, was a member of Chicago Performing Arts. So we were very, very uh, busy and got to a point where we had more business than we could handle. We had to hire, hire somebody else to uh, be part of that, that group. And that was Peter LaBella. He was a member. He joined the Lyric Opera Orchestra the same year I did, 1974, and he stayed way after I did. And he turned out, when I retired in 2003, uh, he took over my position as personnel manager. And we'll talk about Peter if we get a chance uh, when we next talk. An amazing, incredibly talented musician. So wonderful talking with you. And I, I want to tell everybody, if they just want to get an insight to all of this amazing musical history, they could just Google your name. It's all out there. There's tons of stuff. And that's even where I found out that you perform with so many amazing Amazing artists in the 60s and uh, late 60s and also 70s. Uh, Everett oh, yeah. Zladoff Mirsky. Uh, congrats on our Music Hall of Fame. And thank you so much for being here. I just, I, I, I love talking with you and just your your passion, your insight. Uh, it's just amazing after all these years. And uh, it's it's still in you. I don't think, uh, I don't think that'll ever go away. You know, that, that, I, that passion. I, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think it's possible. It's, in, it's, it's as they say, it's in your DNA. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just got to hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. (laughs) Learn about adopting a team from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey, (laughs) we're pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Might have to start a band. (laughs) I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. (laughs) Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.